All right. Um, thank you for being here. Let me see where, where I can stand the best way with the sound. Is that okay? You can hear me, Bob? All right. Um, yeah, unfortunately, Dr. Klingbeil cannot be here today. Um, you see her credentials here. She, she had an event going on in her family that she just absolutely couldn't miss. But I certainly appreciate her having helped putting this talk together. Uh, she is, as you can see, the chief of rehabilitation medicine at the uh, Bronx VA. And in fact, she will be the, she was just appointed as a national director for the upper amputee program for the VA. Uh, so she has an assignment as a national director in that regard. In regard to myself, uh, just a little bit of an introduction. I work at the Washington DC VA Medical Center um, where I lead the interdisciplinary pain rehabilitation program. Uh, I've been with the VA since 2001, and I just want to give you a story of how I got into pain care. Um, I don't know if anybody knows that of me. I mean, I'm a neurologist. Um, I did my clinical neurophysiology training at, at the NIH. Uh, and when I started at the VA hospital in, in Washington, D.C., so in the neurology department, I was originally hired more for the clinical neurophysiology, but they said, but we really need a pain clinic. Right? We already have a neurophysiologist, but we need a pain clinic, right? So can you do a pain clinic one afternoon a week? Right? We give you some people to help you with. Uh, so I had really good people working with me from the mental health department, a psychologist who volunteered, uh, a nurse practitioner from the nursing service. Uh, we had a psychiatrist who volunteered his time for the most complex patients. Uh, and that's how we got started. And, you know, many of our facilities in the VA are probably still there. Right, bringing teams together that are comprised of, of members from other departments that volunteer their time. But it's very clear that you, know, you cannot do pain, pain management part-time in the sense that it would be a side job or a hobby. Really, I think you know, a facility like a Washington CVA that serves about 60,000, 70,000 veterans it needs more than one afternoon a week, right? So over time, we built an intercessory pain rehabilitation program at our facility. Um, we have dedicated staff to that. Um, you know, at least one of, of the, my team members is also here. Uh, Monica, nurse practitioner there, Monica Brown. And uh, I appreciate her being here. Somebody else had to fly. Other people had to leave today already. I think you all have been at this, you know, of this pain week for so long. I really appreciate you being here on a Saturday morning. All right, so let's get started about um, what I'm going to tell you about uh, the VA's approach to pain management. Um, so you see the learning objectives here. So we talk about the pain care in the VA in general, I give you some, prevalent, some history about the prevalence of the, uh, pain conditions in veterans, then talk about our approach in regard to pain management teams and integrate into that also our whole health approach that we have at the VA, uh, with the access to complementary and integrative health modalities, and we give you some case examples that come really from the Bronx VA, from, that, from Dr. Klingweil's contribution. So a little bit as a background. Um, so this is information about veterans in the United States. So this is not specifically about veterans in the VA. But we know that chronic pain is more common in veterans than in the non-veterans, and you see this here on the left side, severe pain is about 40% more common than in the non-veteran U.S. population, right? 9.1% on the left graph of veterans report severe pain um, in, um, in the preceding quarter uh, was a 6.4%. And what you also see here, and uh, let's see if this can be shown, is 
that in the second, in the second you know, graph, that especially for younger population, the prevalence of severe pain is greater, more than two times than in the non-veteran younger population in the United States. And this is true both for, for male and female veterans. The most common conditions are uh, musculoskeletal uh, pain conditions. There's a little bit of a formatting issue here going on that, that I see that uh, wasn't certainly beforehand. Now, this is um, about the actual veterans enrolled in VA pain care. And what you can see is on the left side um, that one out of three patients that uh, is seen in primary care has a chronic pain diagnosis. But one out of 10 has severe, persistent daily pain. So about 10% of the veterans that we see that get their primary care from the VA have a severe pain condition. And we know that uh, in, in veterans, pain conditions, as in non-veterans, is often associated with mental health conditions. Uh, and we've seen since, since 2008 to 2015, when we did a comparative analysis, we've seen that there's an increased prevalence in pain conditions in veterans. There's an increased severity of these pain conditions and prevalence. And we similarly see an increase of the prevalence of mental health conditions in veterans. So both pain scores as well as the prevalence of pain has increased over time. Uh, the study on the right side is an old study, but this is for returnees who came back from the OIF, uh, OIF uh, conflicts. And as you can see, pain in those veterans in particular happened usually in the context of other conditions, specifically here, a very large proportion who had pain, PTSD, and mild TBI uh, conditions. Now, how do we approach this then in trying to develop a health system that uh, addresses the needs of the veterans, right? I mean, this really points out that healthcare consumes 80%, 18% of the GDP of this nation. Uh, chronic conditions are the last majority of, of the healthcare expenditures in the United States. So how do we as systems, as healthcare systems, um, develop a healthcare model that really uh, is both cost-effective as well as benefit, benefits our veterans. Um, among others, I'm talking here to you, there was recently a published report of the Department of Health and Human Services, Pain Management Best Practices, support, best practices um, Report uh, for the United States, and they identified uh, the VA pain care, step care model approach as a model of best care for an integrative health approach to pain, from pain management. So the VA DOD approach. And actually, let me ask you, you know, before we go into this a little bit further, um, who, who here has worked at a VA in the past or has maybe affiliated with a VA at this point? So it's a very large proportion, it's, it's a very large, you know, fr fraction of you. So, but I'm glad about, you know, you coming and, and supporting this, uh, but I'm even more glad about others coming and learning about what we do in the VA system. So as we develop our approach, this is here now I'm talking a little bit about the whole health approach. That is obviously not specific to what we do in the VA for pain. This is really a foundational aspect, and as it's listed on the back, it really is a reorientation how the veterans engage with their healthcare system. Right? It's, it's a personal health planning, it's coaching, it's identifying goals and lives. And as you can see, there are three main components to that. What's, what's here in the purple-red, 
That is whole health clinical care. That is really what we usually understand about what a healthcare system usually does, right? Outpatient, inpatient care that addresses diseases as they manifest. But it is supported, as you can see on the left side, by well-being programs, which is in blue. Right? This is a foundational aspect uh, that we have also in our step care model for pain that supports self-care and self-management and builds skills to address not just pain, we have to see it in the context, obviously, of nutrition, of exercise, of sleep. Um, and it does include uh, the integrative health modalities as well that veterans and all patients can engage on their own, including yoga, tai chi. We want to foster the engagement with that, and we offer that, but at the same time, it really is in the power of each and every veteran and, and patient to engage with that on their own. Uh, but we also, and that's here the pathway that's listed on the top, it includes partnering with the veterans, providing coaches that basically identify um, you know, their own mission, their aspirations. What are their goals in life? What is important for you? Right? And, and this goal setting, among others, really helps to often put the pain experience into perspective and provides a much larger approach. So self-care uh, consists, obviously, you know, um, as, as we can see in self-prescription, it's, it's founded on the integrative health modalities that we can offer. We offer also pharmacological and physical activation. We have to address the comorbidities, and we really need to promote healthy behaviors. It's important uh, to realize that as we think about chronic pain conditions, that we, and I think at the end of this pain week, uh, you know, you're all aware of it, that we can't really approach chronic pain with the same approach as we do acute pain, or in many ways, we have to leave the pure biomedical approach. It's biopsychosocial uh, care that we have to provide. And as chronic pain persists, the brain changes, right? Um, you know, we heard that even in the acupuncture talk, um, you know, Ed, you, know, show, you, you showed it so wonderful in, in your talk yourself this morning about acupuncture and the effect of it on the neuroplasticity. As, brain, as pain persists, the emotional and the cognitive aspects become more important. And on the other hand, uh, the, 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 the sensory afferent is, is, is less of an impact. And the brain circuitry is really sensitized. And in this in this um, pain week, there were many presentations that talked about centralized pain syndromes, right? And generalized pain conditions such as fibromyalgia or primary pain conditions as there will be in the ICD-11, as it will be called in that. So we have to address them from a different perspective. Specifically in regard to the non-pharmacological pain treatments in VA, there was a state-of-the-art conference that we held in 2016 that brought uh, experts from within the VA and from outside of the VA together and said, you know, looking at all those CIH, complementary integrative health modalities and other non-pharmacological approaches for musculoskeletal pain, what actually has value? What is that that we should integrate into our healthcare system? And they came up with these recommendations, right? On one hand, the behavioral psychological therapies, you know about these by now, CBT, acceptance and commitment therapy, mindfulness-based stress responses, uh, uh, stress reduction, then the manual therapies, acupuncture, massage, uh, and spinal manipulation, chiropractic care, and then obviously yoga, tai chi, uh, and exercise protocols, uh, often with support of the physical therapist. So what we are now mandating in the VA is uh, this, list, this list of 
what we call category one or the list one of integrative health modalities. Um, these were issued by directive in May 2017 that these must be offered to the veteran if they are you know, recommended by the veteran's healthcare team, if they are part of the pain care plan. And if you don't have them available at the VA itself, we will make them available in the community, right, by policy. So that is acupuncture, massage therapy, tai chi, yoga, meditation, clinical hypnosis, biofeedback and guided imagery that were included in this. And as you can see separately, chiropractic care has been actually uh, covered as a benefit for veterans uh, since 2004 already. So we've, we've promoted that and we've offered that for the last 15 years. Uh, but this is really integrated into our step care model. And, uh, you know, many of you have seen this slide or a similar slide possibly in some of these presentations this week. I made slight modifications to it. Uh, but foundational to that is certainly um, the, the self-care and the self-management, as you can see there, right? I mean, and that's not just the patient. It's also the caregivers involving them. Uh, and it really integrates into the whole health approach that we have in general. And then we take a very broad approach, right? Nutrition, as you can see, sleep, exercise, and all that. But we also need to make sure, and that's part of the step care model, that our primary care teams that include primary care mental health integration, that they have access to these modalities right at the primary care level. We don't want any gatekeepers really there that may prevent somebody to get access to acupuncture or a pain group or, you know, the chiropractic care, right? It needs to be accessible as much as possible by and within primary care providers and within primary care. And more and more, we are going towards self-scheduling of veterans, right? Physical therapy, chiropractic care, them signing up for our groups within our integrative health and wellness programs. So, uh, you know, so that we actually take the primary care provider a little bit out of the equation and really put the ownership more on the patients themselves. Um, it also means that, you know, we in pain clinics, right, and I come home from a, a pain clinic, um, which is in the Department of Neurology, we, we need to have partners within primary care that we can work with. Right? We identify often the sleep and the lack of exercise and you know, really need for improved nutrition. But we need in primary care then people where we can say, hey, this veteran really needs more help with it. Right? We can't recreate this in our pain clinic. So this is why I put this, this is the, the errors between the, the primary care and the specialty care. We are well to work this together. It's really not a separation between what primary care does and what specialty care does. But we are mandating that every VA hospital uh, has access to a pain clinic and pain management team. Just a little bit more about the primary care. Uh, I mentioned already that uh, our primary care teams, um, the medical home often, as it's referred to, including the military, we call them the patient-aligned care team. They really provide the coordinated care. They, are, they form this long-term relationship the primary care team and the primary care provider in particular, they have that relationship with the veteran that we need to build on. As we try to engage them with somebody's opioid use disorder into treatment that is evidence-based, the primary care provider has a central role. They are the ones who can engage the veteran. They are the ones who hopefully in the future will be more and more able to deliver the care right where the veteran is. Um, 
So in regard to the pain specialty, so we have these interdisciplinary pain management programs that we mandate at every uh, VA facility now. This is part of the current legislation that came out in 2016. And we said, you know, if you build these pain teams, you need to make sure that you obviously have to have a medical provider in there who can examine a patient and make the appropriate diagnosis and the referrals for, for further diagnostic workup and, and therapeutic approaches. But you have to integrate also addiction expertise. All of our pain teams, I'm not saying that they all have it, but they're all mandated to have it, and many are in the process of developing this further, all of them are expected to have integrated access to somebody who has addiction expertise. Because what we see is that many patients who have misuse of their opiate medication, where the primary care says, hey, I need some help with this, they get referred to the pain clinic first. It's a much more acceptable referral pathway, whereas if they go to an SUD, a substance use disorder program, an opioid disorder program, you know, they, they, that, that may not work out, right? They may not go, or they may not show up, uh, or they say, hey, I'm here really for my pain. And so many of the OUP, opioid use disorder programs really have, have had trouble or challenges in regard to accepting patients who fear that much of why they use a medication and maybe have misused a medication and overused was a pain condition. Among others, we were the ones often who started it. So we fear that the pain clinics are the ones who are the bridge towards opioid use disorder treatment if there is a diagnosis of opioid use disorder. And this is why we are mandating the integrated access. But we also mandate that every pain clinic or pain team has integrated somebody who can do CBT or ACT or mindfulness-based stress reduction, the ones that we define as evidence-based. So we mandate that behavioral approaches, both in group as well as in individual approaches if needed, uh, is available. And really, I mean, the majority of patients participate in groups, uh, and we increasingly try to bring groups where CBT is delivered by our pain psychologist together with the activation and the movement disorder or the movement therapeutic aspect from physical therapist. So we have many interdisciplinary pain rehabilitation programs where the psychologists work together with a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, a rehab specialist, to try to deliver and coordinate their, their pain management approach. Um, so as I said, you know, we, we also mandate that these clinics not only do a consultative, right, a consultation for the patient with complex pain, but part of the legislation in 2016 came out that these pain management teams need to be resourced and equipped to actually follow those patients you know, for medication management also. And I know it's not everywhere happening in the VA system, and certainly we don't expect every patient who has opiate medication being referred to a pain team to maintain it. The opposite would be true. We really want primary care and the primary care team to do so. But for the patients where both the veteran and the primary care team feel they need some help, those pain teams need to be there to support them. And it may need a temporary takeover in regard to opiate prescribing by the pain team because they are better resourced to do the close follow-up to make those medication adjustments that are needed, not only in regard to optimizing, obviously, uh, the opiate therapy, and often that's a gradual reduction, but at the same time optimizing the other, the non-opiate therapies. Right? And we know from several studies that if you if you have the extra time and the resources to optimize non-opioid therapy, pharmacological therapies, in addition to other modalities, 
you can make significant improvements compared to the standard of care, which is seeing a veteran or a patient to be, what, twice a year or something like that. All right, so in the VA system, we also have, and that's the tertiary aspect, we have 20 interstitial pain rehabilitation programs that have CARF accreditation. Um, as I point out here, I mean, they have various structures, uh, but they all are certified by the Commission for the Accreditation of Rehabilitation Facilities. They are listed here on the right side. You can see them. Uh, some of them are less intensive. The most intensive ones um, is, as you can see, is a three-week intensive outpatient program at the Minneapolis VA that has a lodging option. And we have one inpatient um, CARF accredited interdisciplinary pain rehabilitation program, which is at the Tampa VA and um, we've had that for, for more than 10 years. All right, so I want to come back a little bit about how, how, what is the expectation in regard to how primary care and specialty teams, pain teams in particular, work together. Right? We want to get away from this model where primary care sends a consultation to the pain clinic and then they schedule them sometime down the road and uh, our access standards in the VA now that they have to get seen within 28 days. If you can't provide that service in the VA, they will be referred outside hopefully for somebody who can see them sooner. Uh, but we are going away from this model of, of sending them and maybe then getting a consult with, with uh, some recommendations back that primary care then is, is, is asked to implement to really become a team of primary care and pain clinics working together. We see our pain clinics more or less as the extension, as the wider primary care team. And we see that the primary care provider is part of our, should be part of our pain team implementing with us the pain care plan. So in the idea setting, as the pain team develops, the pain clinic develops the, the plan, the pain care plan, they involve the primary care provider. And it's so important in many ways because the primary care provider really knows their patient often so well, and they know what they can and cannot do and uh, sometimes what they've tried and, and what haven't. And the other time, so, but in addition, so it's better, is they're involving the primary care is better to address the needs of the veterans, but it also is better to address the needs of the primary care provider. They may not put into the consult request what they're concerned about, right, or what their challenges will be as you implement a pain care plan. And I think opioid tapering, opioid reductions over time is really something where I think this collaboration has to happen in particular. But obviously the involvement has to be um, really targeted to the needs, right? And some patients, the pain team just has to write an e-consult and maybe it's just a specific question about how to adjust the medication. But in other patients, the ones that are high risk, you really have to have the pain special team, team do more or less a temporary takeover saying, hey, this patient needs more care right now. We as a team will do this. Obviously, you continue your regular primary care with your, with your provider um, in regard to your hypertension and your diabetes. But often what we do is we try to engage the patient, for instance, in regard to their diabetes, right? And sometimes, you know, the little care that may be there, that if there is truly a, a procedure indicated, but we won't, nobody from us will do it, no intervention provider will do it in somebody who has a hemoglobin A1C of 10 or above, right? I mean, that in itself can be a strong motivator. It's like, hey, let's work on your whole health approach, and it will open you up to more options down the road as well. Uh, and it's really something that we have to do. 
But we want to make sure that the veterans have access to these pain teams in all kinds of forms, right? So not only with the, with the traditional consults, but that we also work to, uh, you know, I reach by phone, at AE consults, telehealth consults, uh, and increasingly also we identify patients to come to the pain clinic over a predictive analytic dashboards that we have that identify patients at highest risk. So what we have now is here uh, an approach, and we've mandated for the last couple of years, is that at every facility, patients who are at the highest risk for, for having a negative outcome of overdose or suicides, they are identified by our dashboard, and as you can see, it's a stratification tool for opioid risk mitigation, right? This TORM tool identifies these, and at the facilities, every the facility is asked and has been mandated to put a team together. Usually it's primary care, pain clinic, mental health, suicide prevention, addiction medicine, sometimes case management, social workers, to see how can we optimize the care of these patients, right? What can we do? And it's not about medication adjustment and taking opioid medication away because maybe the patient has significant risk factors for opioids. It's more about how can we engage this care better, right? We see mental health concerns, but he or she is not enrolled in a mental health clinic. Who is going to reach out and get them into our primary care mental health integration, right? And, you know, this patient has significant concerns in regard to addiction, right? But we, we see the pain clinic is struggling with this and is ready to almost, you know, stop the opioid medication or, or whatever the patient is on due to abnormal urine drug screens or, or whatever they see, the red flags but the patient isn't engaged in addiction. So help us out, right, and, and, and get the patient on board. And this is really a model moving forward for us in the VA system to go beyond the patients of highest risk for overdose and suicides. We see this as a model, and we want to expand it as a model to coordinate care of highest risk patients with complex pain conditions, whether or not they are on opioid medication, right? We have plenty of patients who are not on opiate medication, but they need this coordinated approach. They need mental health and primary care and pain clinics working together. Uh, and this is really what hopefully in the future these, these, these opioid risk review teams will develop into these models, into the model of interdisciplinary case reviews that can be done and can be accessed for help at all facilities. Now, in regard to scan echo, uh, many of you um, may be participating in one way or the other in a scan echo project. It's not specific to the VA. It came out of the uh, New Mexico School of Medicine, as you can see here. Originally, it was applied to hepatitis C care. Uh, but in the VA system, we have scan echoes in all kinds of um, you know, disciplines, including in um, pain management. Um, they are held in different forms, sometimes more it's like a webinar style, but in the essence is really that there is case discussion that involves primary care providers. Uh, the patients can present it by primary care provider or can brought to the team for attention to discuss their care. The patient is not present for these, right? But, but the team then, uh, you know, including the, the pain specialty experts who may be on this team, discuss what is the most appropriate care uh, with the primary care providers, make the suggestions, and over time, um, we hope that primary care providers and the whole team is really uh, increase their ex expertise to do this um, on their own. Uh, this is some of the, you know, this is just here a picture of the scan echoes uh, that we have in the VA in regard to pain specialty teams. Uh, as you can see here, it has changed over the, the years somewhat. Uh, some are really certainly more active than others. 
But one example also where we want to take what we do in pain specialty clinics and want to make sure that we bring that access to primary care is our cognitive behavioral therapy approach for chronic pain, right? The so CBTCP protocol. On the left side is that full CBT protocol originally developed for individual uh, CBT approach, um, but then also often now delivered in, in groups and in modifications. But for just last year, um, we now issued in the VA the six modules that can be used within the primary care setting. So these are brief modules, they're half an hour each, they are meant to be uh, three to four sessions, up to six appointments at the most. And you can integrate these uh, into your primary care setting. And that manual is available also for, for others to use. I mean, it's, it was developed with government money. Right. Um, we can do questions at the end, if you, if you don't mind. All right. Uh, in regard to uh, the chronic peria model here, I think I just want to move forward. I just uh, want to say that there is really a hierarchy and infrastructure here of how we support the region and networks and the hospitals, and that there's a communication where we, we bring the, you know, the teams together at the hospital pain committees and at the vision pain committees. Next week, for instance, the VA will hold a conference in almost all of these visions, there's one vision not participating, but the other 17 visions will have regional pain conferences where we are holding them all nationally at the same time, and we will half of it about will be nationally delivered uh, pain education and, and training. But the other ones is really bringing the teams together to, to locally work together, and we expect more than 1,000 providers to participate in that one. Uh, so a little bit more about the whole health. I mentioned that already. Uh, this is really the emphasis that goes beyond delivering integrative health modalities, but really is a self-care approach, uh, as, you can, as you can see here. Um, I just want to go in the interest of time. I want to go through this relatively fast. Uh, but it's looking at the big picture, really, as, as you know, and um, having a conversation with a veteran, setting the goals in particular of what is important for them, and then building the healthcare plan that the system supports in the implementation for this individual patient. Uh, part of the current legislation 2016 was that the VA has centers of excellence in regard to whole health and integrative health modalities. So we had flagship sites uh, that we built in 2018. On the right side, uh, so these are the flagship sites in 2018. We've identified another list of, uh, so these are 18 sites, another list of 36 sites that will be developed further as flagship sites in the year to ahead. Uh, and I just want to, you know, give you an example here of, of one of the whole health clinics that we have. This is really from what Dr. Klingbeil had. Uh, just one example here uh, from the Iowa City VA, um, where, as you can see here, they have a uh, therapeutic lifestyle clinic uh, for people with chronic um, health problems. As you can see here, um, I mean, obviously, uh, this is just a follow-up in regard to the patients that they enrolled. You see not only a benefit in regard to pain, but clearly you see a benefit in so many markers of health, as you can see, including metabolic markers, such as the hemoglobin, you know, A1C levels. Uh, but these are the list of CIH modalities that are offered in that program. Um, you can see many of those are the same ones that were on the list earlier as, as recommended and required for the VA system, but otherwise as well. Um, just a few examples here. This one comes from the Bronx VA, uh, from Dr. Klingbeil's practice, together with the occupational therapist, uh, a, a patient basically who, who, as you can see here, um, 
you know, he had this diffuse muscle pain rheumatoid arthritis, multifocal pain, uh, significant impaired in their abilities. Uh, and, you know, the rheumatic gradient scale here is listed as 6, and self-efficacy self was very low. Uh, but over time, and this is here, the problems that he identified, the trouble sleeping, right? And we see this in many of our analyses. It's very typical for a chronic pain patient, really struggling with a day-to-day -day functioning. And as the patient then in, in, in engages in this program here, uh, and you know, that's six sessions of 60 to 90 minutes only, right? I mean, it's a relatively small program. It's very similar to actually what we have at our own facility, at my facility, where it's a six weeks program. It's about three hours, it's a half day, every week for six weeks. And we see similar kind of outcomes, right, that, that engage the veteran. And, uh, you know, this is just statements that he made afterwards, right? I used to have so much pain, but ever since I did this pain group, I have very little pain. Whenever I feel like I'm slipping, I pick up the book and read it to check myself. So he works in a sleep habit, as you can see himself. Um, he really also is talking about his, his mood and the ability to relax and how much it's improved. Um, so, and then, you know, the formal assessment also in regard to the pain scores and the self-execution has certainly improved. Um, I think I um, want to, um, I think in regard to our paradigm shift in the VA, many of you have heard this, I think this is certainly not unique to the VA system at all. I think we're all moving away from opioid medication. Uh, certainly the VA DA, DOD clinical practice guideline as the first recommendation says, do not initiate long-term opioid therapy for chronic pain. In some ways it went beyond the CDC guidelines in that regard but it's because of the acknowledgement of how hard it is to reduce opioids and discontinue opioids in somebody who already has established a long-term opioid therapy for chronic pain, often loses a benefit, clearly loses a benefit, if there was even any in the beginning, but then is stuck and having these challenges coming off. So we will talk about afternoon. Uh, we will have a session, actually, um, um, together with Dr. Spool and, and Dr. Pangankar, we will be talking about the opiate safety initiative in the VA and our approach to opiate tapering. All right. Um, many of, of the patients, this is more from the example from the um, Bronx VA, actually, about all the modalities that they offer. Uh, and you can see the list here on the, on the left side. Uh, it's a little comprehensive approach. This is an example here. This is actually a picture of Dr. Klingbeil performing acupuncture uh, on a patient. Um, as, as you can see here, and, and again, uh, Ed, you had your acupuncture talk this morning about it. Uh, I'm going to clip this in the interest of time, um, and maybe I, I'm going to uh, summarize here. This is a case, uh, and if you feel, I mean, obviously look at this further. It's kind of interesting in the case that this case that the patient had to struggle engaging in the beginning here. Um, so he, he is on, as you can see, he engages in 2009 in the pain clinic had this motor vehicle accident, chronic pain that is multifocal on all these medications, including, as you see, morphine 100 milligrams long-acting three times a day and immediate release on top of it. Right, so he was referred, he was really put into a more activating approach, but they left the medication more or less, you know, they, they gradually reduced it over time, uh, and this was in 2009, keep that in mind. So they gradually en engaged the patient I started him on other therapies, uh, as you can see here. But he really didn't come down that much, as you can see here. 2012, he was still on 100 milligrams three times a day. 2017, it was 90 
2017, you know, July, as you can see, so it's coming down on the short acting. But then eventually what happened is he needed a commercial driver's license. There was this one aspect that truly now got him on board. I said, I need to come off, right? And often it's the external pressure, whether it's external pressure or somebody accepting this as their goal, but then he was able to wean himself off. It's a remarkable story, right, in that regard. And I think it speaks to the point that we have to engage the veterans. And the opioid reduction shouldn't be our goal. The opioid reduction should be their goal. They should want to come off. And if we don't get them on board, we will always be challenged, uh, and there will be conflict. So uh, that's something that we will also talk this afternoon a little bit on our approach. And, uh, so this is just a summary that I have here. So the majority of patients with chronic pain really need to have access to a primary care that is well-trained providers that are equipped with access to the CIH modalities within the pact. Uh, certainly uh, for the patients who are at highest risk, highest complexity in regard to prescribing, we need to have these interdisciplinary pain teams uh, available, and they need to be interdisciplinary, right? The emphasis is to have the whole spectrum of access of, of pain modalities, pain treatment modalities available. And we do have to bring it to the veterans who cannot come to the main facilities through telehealth approaches, through e-consult. Uh, and we do have to identify the highest risk patients and proactively bring the team members together, as we do in these interdisciplinary team-based risk review teams, so that we can identify the veterans that need our resources the most, and we can dedicate the resources that we have to those patients at need. Um, and that's one. Thank you. Any So I, th I think we have a few minutes for questions. I'd be happy to answer those. Um, if, you, if you have them, please state your, your name and where you're from and uh, answer your question. I'm, uh, ask your question. Yeah, please. I'm a social worker at the VA in Salt Lake. Is this on? Yeah. Yes. And we have, I'm just new, three, I've, I've worked in a substance abuse clinic, but I moved to palliative care. And we have, I've just been there three weeks. And we have three massage therapists, uh, one, a doctor, MD, and a massage therapist that even runs the clinic. But all of the massage therapy is contracted out. They're sent to, you know, by choice or whatever the new term is for that. The VA is not using massage therapy. And they find other things for these massage therapists slash MD slash chiropractors, other things for them to do, but not massage therapy. Is that something that might change? Might the VA start allowing massage therapy? Right, so there are certainly some VA facilities where massage therapy is already offered. Uh, you know, there are restrictions in that and to some degrees. I mean, it's like with many of these modalities, you can't necessarily sign up for every session for a whole year, every week, right? Uh, but there are VAs where it's offered. So there's not a, a VA-wide limitation in regard to not being allowed to do so. Um, Really, all of these modalities in the VA, the integrative health modalities, the guidance comes from the Integrative Health Coordinating Center, so with Dr. Kligler, who is the one who directs it. Um, there are guidance in regard to certain limits uh, in regard to access, for instance, in regard to massage therapy or the number of acupuncture visits if somebody gets referred that are originally approved and how much can be, you know, obviously 
expanded upon. Uh, but it, I think it, at this point, it really greatly varies what is available at each facility. But as you can, as you tell me, right, because you don't have it available at your site, you're actually referring it out. So at least it's becoming available that way. Any other questions? Thank you so much. Um, yeah, RVA regarding massage has decided to restrict referrals for fibromyalgia, even though you know, there's other things that would benefit for it. But I've also heard that even giving a patient um, a massage tool would count as massage. I don't know how you, if that squares with what your thoughts are on, on that. But um, that, on the one hand, it's consistent with the idea of self-management. On the other hand, it's not necessarily talking about offering it as, as a modality, I think. Right. You know, I, I think um, we need to find ways eventually to obviously empower the veterans to do as much as possible on their own, right? And, you know, I think massage therapy, it's, it's probably one of the prototypical passive modalities in the sense that somebody else does it to you. Uh, but I think we need to find ways also of how can we engage the veteran and their caregivers and the family, right, to do this and do this and maybe learn some skills that can deliver the same thing at home rather than having come to the VA. The reality is that much of what you maybe gain from a half an hour of massage session at the VA, if you have a 40-mile drive home through heavy traffic, you probably have your tension in your neck again and your neck muscles. So, I mean, really, do you, I mean, what we have is often that, you know, yes, if it's convenient, it's fine, but in the very end, all these integrative health modalities that are accessible by veterans on their own should be done as closely as possible where they live. Any other questions? Hello, um, thank you very much. My, my name is R Rebecca Kaplowitz. I am the Chief of Primary Care at the Memphis VA. And I was recently voluntold to be the uh, Primary Care Pain Management Champion um, for the facility. Um, now, we've had uh, several years of difficulty with, um, firing, with hiring a um, pain management physician. Um, a, a specialist in pain management and recently fortunately had uh, a, a new hire coming on and so we're going to be able to ramp up a new pain management clinic and my question is um, what would be the best practices with like referral criteria for that clinic because I could imagine um, providers saying oh well now I've got a place to refer all these complicated people to and then setting up you know, very kind of careful referral criteria for that and then feeling like, okay, well, now there are all these barriers for some of our patients. Who are, who are those middle ground patients? Uh, so I think that there, uh, we've got some, some challenges ahead and I wanted to, uh, to just get your sense of what um, maybe some best approaches to managing those challenges would be now that we have an opportunity. That's right. a complicated question. So, okay. so, so you know, <laughs> many of people are, are laughing here, so probably many feel that there's the same relation. <laughs> I, I think, you know, to get started, though, so you truly have to, I mean, if you, if you don't have a strong primary care program that has access to these modalities with it, and that actually has integrated some kind of pain school or access to a group that does pain care, you're setting us up yourself up already for way too many referrals, 
more than you would be able to handle. And you know, we can see the, the easy the pattern, right? The referral has happened. Somebody says there's no pain provider. Then you know, the, the wait time goes beyond 28 days. Suddenly, these patients get all referred outside. And, and, uh, and, and where they have even less access to, and possibly to an integrative, coordinated approach that brings primary care and specialty teams together. Right, so I, I see that. You also have to realize you know, what kind of pain specialty provider did you hire, right? Clearly, many of the people, of the providers who come out of a pain specialty or pain interventional pain program, I mean fellowship program, board certified, are very much geared towards interventional care. Right, and um, I don't know, you, you probably know that in the VA, as we mandated these pain teams, we didn't say they have to be board-certified pain specialists. We often fear that the board-certified pain specialists, what they're really good at sometimes, and I'm not, I don't want to make any generalization here, but some of them really feel their passion in, inter, in interventional pain care. And it's actually a, not the same skill set as engaging somebody in a comprehensive, multimodal, opioid therapy reduction, possibly, and in activating you know, a therapeutic approach. So you have to see what matches what your providers can do, what they can do best, with what your facility need. And you need to build a support structure, I think, and extend this in many ways, right? That allow access to, you know, including the teams that we talked about, so they can help deliver the care that the veterans truly need, right? I don't know at all who your pain provider is going to be. I think, you know, hopefully he, she will be part of the team and move them forward in the multimodal approach. But clearly one provider is not going to do it. And I think we have to have the un understanding also that not everybody who's on open medication can be referred to the pain clinic, as I said earlier. Right? I th my name is Bob Towell. I'm one of the physical therapists that was involved in the Payne University presentation this morning. Right and you on. really eloquently presented a very complex subject. And my thought is, is maybe you could do something on like VA Pulse and present it so that we can get this across to primary care. Primary care, you know, this is complex for them. They don't understand this and they don't want to really take the time to understand it as well as they need to and we all need to. Um, but if, if we can present this out there and then their leadership say, okay, look, maybe even put it into TMS or something so that it's a requirement, but you did a really fantastic job on this and, and maybe do something on VA Pulse to, to help okay. pass this along. So I think you speak to the need of to make sure that we all are on board in our system as well as probably somewhere else outside also to bring this collaboration between primary care and pain specialty, right? I did go, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we have the primary care pain champions group, right, that, that uh, she just referred to. Um, every vision, every network now has a primary care pain champion in the VA world, right? And so we have 18 lead primary care pain champions now that hopefully will support their, their local pack pain champions. Right, and two weeks ago we did have a conference and we talked exactly about this with them. Right, so we're starting the dialogue, we just formed this, and yes, you're absolutely right about it. We all need to speak the same language. We need to understand what our limitations are, but we also need to, you know, um, fulfill our responsibilities. Right, and, and I know primary care, as everybody else in the whole United States, is, is, is certainly stressed in regard to access. 
um, within the next couple of decades, I think we will see a reduction of the primary care pain provider and primary care physicians in the United States. I think it's about 40 percent. Uh, so we certainly know there's going to be a shortage of primary care providers. We need to be careful of how do we support them with a team so that not everything goes through the primary care provider, right? If I want to send my patient back and says, this patient that I just saw in the pain clinic, I'm concerned about their sleep. They're not using their CPAP mask, right? They should probably have access to the CBT insomnia protocol, right, with somebody, right? And they need to work on the nutrition and exercise. I shouldn't have to refer back to the primary care provider to now make another refer to these other programs. We need to find a way that we can say to patients right there and says, listen, in your primary care clinic, that nurse is going to do this program and it's perfect for you. Just go there, right? So uh, I, I think we need to, we have challenges there, but yes, we need, we need all of us working together. All right. Um, thanks everybody for staying so long. I think it's 10.30, please come up here and ask questions individually, but I want to be mindful of the time constraints.